and welcome to The Landed Podcast. I'm John Montgomery, co-founder of Landed, a travel company specializing in tailor-made journeys throughout Latin America and the Antarctic. At Landed, we're devoted to exploring these regions, searching out exceptional experiences and locations for our clients. The Landed Podcast profiles some of our favorite places and brings you conversations with friends we've made along the way, explorers, artists, and visionaries. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. For American expat A.J. Wildey, what started as a two-month adventure working on a cacao farm in the Peruvian Amazon became a quest to share Peruvian chocolate with the world. A.J.'s been traveling throughout Peru's cacao-growing regions since 2013. Her work brings together Peruvian farmers, chocolate makers, and chocolate lovers. In 2017, she opened El Cacao Tal, a showcase for the finest Peruvian craft chocolate. Here, in Lima neighborhood of Barranco, visitors immerse themselves in the world of Peruvian chocolate. From its broad spectrum of flavors to the stories behind each bar. Let's meet AJ. AJ Wildey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I stumbled into your your first shop, I think, um, in Barranco in about March 2018. I just kind of wandered in. Um, it, it was in the front of a sort of a natural foods grocery slash pastelaria. And you're, I think that space is now a, a hairdressing salon. <laughs> Times change. You're growing, you're doing great. Yeah, we stayed there for about a year. It was a great beginning spot. Uh, we had great neighbors downstairs. We were right at street level. People could see, wander in, be curious but the space eventually became too small and we moved just four doors down on the second floor. We're kind of tucked away in the back, but we have a huge space where people can come sit down, a huge country oak wooden table where people can sit, talk chocolate. We have a lab space in the back where we do workshops, do chocolate experiments. So we're, like you say, it's growing uh, and who knows where we'll be five years from now. You're moving on up. Let's let's help more people know about what you do. Yeah. Um, the old shop was a little challenging because you'd be doing a, you know, an artisanal chocolate tasting, and people would like me just stumble in and go, "What's going on in here? Can I have some?" Hey, chocolate. <laughs> Must be. Um, so let, let's talk. Let's go back in your history. Tell me about your first trip to Peru. What brought you there? Yeah, so I was doing my undergrad at Dickinson College and an anthropologist major, love international, love Latin America. And I had the opportunity to take a semester and do the classic study abroad situation. And I found this amazing program in Peru where you were studying courses for three months and then you had uh, the fourth month as an independent study project interim. And the students were allowed to pick their topic of interest, pick their fieldwork site. This was gold for the anthropologist and me, and it really attracted me. Uh, this idea to be able to develop my own investigation 
Peru was one of the countries on the list. Uh, and I just felt this connection with the theme of the program, which was also indigenous populations and globalization. I've always been fascinated about the change in community relationships um, as time progresses, as people uh, interact with different spheres, get to know different people. And that was what sealed the deal to come to Peru. And your background is in anthropology. It's not in agroscience, right? Right, right. So you came to study a population of what? Cocoa farmers. So the funny part is actually when I first came to Peru, I was studying Andean agriculture. I've always been fascinated by the agro world from a social perspective, this idea of how uh, farming practices, farming relationships translate into people relationships. Um, and when I came to Peru in 2011, uh, for the first time, I was studying in a rural Andean community in the south of Peru, but I loved Peru. Uh, and when I graduated from my undergrad, I got a scholarship thanks to, to Rotary International to do my master's here in Lima. And that's where I first started working on a cocoa farm. Okay. Um, I was looking, I was with a family in the central jungle of Peru, uh, where there's been a large incidence of transition from coca farming to cocoa farming. And I was studying this one small community and their journey through that transition. So coca farming is the coca leaf, uh, right. which uh, on, on the plus side can be used to fight um, the effects of high altitude and is a, totally. a, a lovely herbal tea and on the, the, the minus side uh, can be cultivated to make cocaine. So, yeah. but, but, but uh, cocoa is what is used mm. to make chocolate, cocoa powder, yes. other wonderful things like cocoa butter. Mm -hmm. uh, and you started out in the Andes. I mean, the Andes for your first visit, very different from the places where cacao is grown or cocoa yes. is grown. Worlds uh, apart. Yeah. I mean, you know, Peru, it's really three gigantic uh, regions. There's the coastal desert. There's the high Andes, you know, where a cocoa plant wouldn't know how to grow there. Mm -hmm. And then the jungle. Um, so the jungle is where... It, you went to do your next phase of work and went to your first, I guess, cacao tal, right? Your first yes, literally cocoa plantation. Mm -hmm. What did you find there? I mean, it was probably very small scale. Yes, it was uh, maybe just 20 or 30 hectares or so back in 2013 when I went for the first time. Uh, on the farm that I was staying, I was staying with the family. And it was interesting because it was my first look into the cocoa world. I'd, I'd never worked with, with cacao or cocoa before, aside from gorging myself on chocolate. So this was my first on the field experience. And I was there for two months and I thought I was learning everything. I thought that I would be able to go away and have this deep and technical understanding of how cacao is turned into chocolate, how the cacao is grown, the, the field part of things. Uh, as I would learn later, one of the great obstacles for farmers is that they don't know uh, how to apply the best technical practices to the cacao processing to get the best material. So what I was learning uh, in terms of the farming practices was actually the book on what not to do uh, to make good quality, good tasting chocolate. So it was interesting to learn 
from reverse. Instead of learning good practices, learn the not so good practices, but the practices that characterize the majority of the small scale cocoa farmers in Peru, but also other cocoa producing countries. This has been a long journey then. It's been, you know, five, six years since then. You've started to make a real difference for these small scale farmers now. So El Cacautal is our central platform. Uh, started in 2017 with the idea of providing a permanent platform where people could come learn about Peruvian chocolate, learn about Peruvian cacao, learn about Peruvian cacao and chocolate producers, the whole package, uh, this sensory but also personal look into Peruvian chocolate. And the, the base, the driving force behind it was looking to have a permanent place where people, the, the farmers and chocolate makers could sell their product to have a direct income. Uh, and as I've become more specialized in the chocolate tasting, cacao tasting, familiarized with the different brands, the different kinds of cacao in Peru, I've also been able to offer um, consulting and guidance for new chocolate makers or cacao farmers who are toying with the idea of making their own chocolate and, and have beans that they want to know uh, what they could taste like in the end. A, a sample, I guess, uh, a look inside what they have grown on their farms. And so they'll bring by sample batches, we'll play around in our little laps that up here, see what kind of chocolate can come out. Or if they're chocolate makers that are new, bursting onto the scene, they'll bring some sample of their chocolates and we'll taste it to look for any defects, any suggestions, packaging suggestions. So we're really trying to strengthen each, each ring of the chain of production, uh, which was the central focus of my investigation when I did my master's thesis on this. How do we get small-scale farmers, small-scale chocolate makers uh, into the ring so that people can find their product, appreciate their product, buy their product, and really make this a sustainable source of income for the producers. You've described El Cocoatal as an edible library. <laughs> you have all your favorite or many of your favorite marks and also, let's say, models Mm -hmm. <laughs> or varieties of chocolate from each maker um, mm -hmm. set out in racks and, and shelves. Mm -hmm. so this is all very craft, very artisanal. Yeah. And that's on the consumer side. You come in, you do a tasting, you learn about how chocolate is produced. You get to enjoy and, and really taste some of the wide variety of, of flavors and, and mm -hmm. nuance and texture that's involved in this. But on the producer side, you're allowing these small scale producers to either bring or ship you beans and then show them, look, what you're growing doesn't have to be this over toasted, mm -hmm. burned thing that you, mm -hmm. you maybe have learned you're supposed to create. Instead, depending on how you treat it, all these other results can come. So it's, it's, in some ways, it's a little bit like wine, it's a little bit like coffee. Uh -huh, exactly. It's not only what variety of cacao would be planted, but I think also how it's pollinated, what plants are planted yeah. nearby, what the soil does, how you yes. ferment it, how you toast it, what you do with totally. it after, how you temper it. All these hundreds of variables combine to make differences, and you're teaching them about that in a way that they've never been able to learn. It really makes people realize that that chocolate bar that they're eating is magic. 
all the factors that came together in one in, in, in various instances of time to lead to that final moment where you take a bite of that rich, creamy, smooth chocolate. It's unreal. It's amazing. So am I, am I overstating the, the need for guidance at the local level? No, and that was, uh, it can't be stated enough. And that was my main critique in, in, in the investigation that I did. The farmers were being given all of the physical uh, supplies needed to sow cacao, but then they were left to their own. They didn't know how to ferment. The farmers that I, w that I was staying with had no idea that you needed all this care with temperature, with moving the mass, the different aerobic anaerobic phases during the fermentation process. Um, they were left to their own devices and nothing good came out of that. Uh, there was also no help getting a, a better market value. This idea of comparing wine and coffee these craft specialty products to the chocolate world is, is very new. And it's something that within the past maybe 10 years, people have started to push for and emphasize. Uh, and we need the same level of appreciation, but also the same level of control on the farm side. This, this technical commitment to making sure that each stage of the production is carried out with rigor, with standards. And it's something that farmers are still getting used to, especially if there's no price differentiation. A lot of farmers still sell to the large-scale commercial markets and their price can fluctuate one week from one week to the next and they have no room to argue for a better price even if they did follow the perfect protocol for fermentation and really gave the best of their efforts every single day looking intensely and carefully at the fermentation process and the drying process and when it comes time to sell their bean if they don't have the right buyer the person's going to pay them just the same as they would pay for a moldy, suboptimally fermented batch of cacao. So it's, it's hard for the farmer, and they need the guidance not only in the quality of their product, but also how to get it to the right people who will value the price. And I think that's another main uh, strength that El Cacotal offers. Not only are we giving you the technical guidance on the ground level, but also this platform where you can sell your product. Uh, when we get bean samples in, we work with people who are also interested in buying beans. So when we have the sample of the chocolate from those beans, we can give it to those bean people, the bean people, and they can try it and see what flavors are possible and maybe land a sale for that farmer where they can get uh, a better price for their bean by someone who recognizes the quality. What's the potential price difference between commodity cacao and um, craft cacao? So let me give you an extreme example. Um, one of the most expensive cacaos in the world can fetch 11, 12, 13 dollars per kilo on international markets. A cacao that's just a commodity bulk price quality cacao uh, would be maybe $3, $2 in that area. So the difference okay. is huge. So the difference is, is big enough that it can prevent uh, a farmer or generations of farmers and even probably a whole community because there's going to be teaching going on among neighbors and friends from getting into cocaine production and instead making the world more and better <laughs> chocolate. Who doesn't want more chocolate? <laughs> I mean, it's just everybody wins. It's a no-brainer. Uh, so I guess what's surprising to many people is that 
you'd, you'd almost need advanced degrees mm. to, to really understand all of those variables changing together mm. and to, getting, to, to get to an optimal product. When totally. you go to a wine, you know, a wine production facility or a winery or a vineyard, there's usually one person who is the winemaker. And everybody else just kind of does what that person says, <laughs> a little bit of a consultation. Then that person's probably in charge of the blending too. If it's this complicated for chocolate, how could we expect, you know, local producers exactly. to understand this? Exactly. You can, you absolutely can. It's not a common sense equation for anyone. It's not something that comes naturally or instinctively. It requires a lot of chemical analyses. It requires a lot of agro skills, making sure that the soil nutrient levels are balanced, that the, the shape of the trees and the division of the trees on the land are adequately spaced. Uh, it's something that requires a lot of planning and, and a farmer isn't just going to wake up one morning with a light bulb moment and say, oh, that's exactly what I should do. It requires a lot of studying. So this is happening. It is catching on. How many marks of craft? It's brands. <laughs> yeah, brand, sorry, brands. How many brands of, of chocolate were being produced in 2013 that were not, you know, Nestle and, and Sublime, real, real the kind of chocolate we like? How many of those? Yeah, in 2013 that you could find readily, I'd say maybe three or four here in Peru. Okay, and I, I, it's got to be over you know, a dozen times as many now. Oh What's the, what yes. do you think it is now? Let's see, in the store alone, we have over 40 brands. Uh, but just last month, Peru had its annual cacao and chocolate salon, and there were over 150 booths present from small-scale co-ops from the provinces, mom-and-pop initiatives, uh, and, the, of course, the large brands that we know and love from the shop. But it's burgeoning. It's exponentially increasing. You're telling me there was a craft chocolate salon happening in Lima when I was there last month and I didn't get a backstage pass from you for this? You one? weren't, you just missed it. It was the 11th to the 14th of July. I would have extended. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You would have been first on my list for that pass, that backstage VIP pass. <laughs> okay. Why is it that with so many beautiful new chocolates being produced in Peru. We're not really finding them in the U.S. Is distribution the issue? Is transportation? What is it? What's keeping this yeah. from happening? So I would say two major factors. Um, first is getting it out of Peru. Uh, the, the technical side of logistics, for whatever reason, someone who's specialized in shipping will know better than I would, but Latin America, South America at least, seems to be one of the most difficult continents to ship from, to get goods from. Um, and so the tricky part of that logistics for the chocolate uh, elevate the cost, especially since we need climate-controlled containers. Um, we need to fill a container, which leads into the second problem, uh, scale of production. Peru doesn't mass produce its craft chocolate. We don't have the same machinery that you would find in France and in England, in Switzerland, uh, Italy, to get these really amazing quality chocolates uh, at high volume. So we're limited in production quantity. It's hard for a brand to fill a huge order that would be able to physically fill a container to bring shipping costs down. So we have the, the combination of those two 
factors that play against us that limit chocolate from proving chocolate from being as accessible as other brands. But I think it's also, it's a problem that we see on a global scale in craft chocolate. Outside of a chocolate country's origin, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to find those brands. That's why international chocolate shows are so exciting because you know that if you're going, you're gonna have these brands that will only be in your country for four years, or for four days, sorry. You'll only have these chocolate brands in your country for four days, so you have to go buy it while you can, or take advantage if you have someone coming to visit from another country, do a quick Google of what craft chocolate companies are in that country, and ask the favor of them muling you in chocolate. <laughs> It's really the only way for now. Yeah. I'm going to get on some kind of subscription list with you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, talking about the difficulty of shipping, um, we're trying to ship right now my daughter's jelly cat, purple jelly cat rabbit that she left her, oh, her no. favorite stuffed animal that she left in Atacama. Oh. And it's taken three weeks now. And the, the rabbit has had to make two trips to the United States and it's gone back to Chile. No. And, and it costs it cost $80. And I'm not trying to ship in a temperature controlled yes. container like yes. you are. And it's one little rabbit. <laughs> right. So it is difficult and expensive mm -hmm. to ship to South yeah. America. T tell us what are some of your favorite brands of chocolate that are produced mm -hmm. in Peru? So Trailing off the last topic about talking uh, about the shipping complications logistics, one of the brands that has managed to leave Peru and become available in certain other countries like the States, Canada, um, I know they're up in, they're in Italy, they're looking into a market in Taiwan, uh, is Marana. It's one of Peru's most widely distributed chocolates, even within Peru. It's one of the brands that when people come into the shop, say, okay, I recognize a few of these. And Marana is always on that list. Yeah. They're one of my favorite brands because they're one of the few that have managed to scale up in quantity, in volume, get themselves uh, in everyone's line of view, whether it's in Peru or uh, across the pond, but also maintain rigorous quality in their beans. The flavors are always amazing. And most importantly for me, the anthropologist, maintaining really beneficial, just fair relationships with the farmers. Um, they were one of the first brands that I really got close to, learning about their backstory, learning about the values that they apply when they're sourcing their beans. And when they won one of their first prizes for their bar in Cusco, the 70% bar from Cusco back in 2016, after coming back from the awards ceremony over in England, they, they went to the co-op in Cusco and brought them chocolate to say thank you for all of your work because thanks to your dedication to the fermentation, the post-harvesting, everything, we were able to bring back this bronze medal. Um, they didn't have to do that. That's just part of who they are as a company. And they won my heart right away with that. And it's only my admiration has only grown for them because they've maintained that same level of dedication to farmers even now three years later. Uh, I really admire them so much for that specific uh, ethical component and then on top of the chocolate's delicious. So it's a win-win for anyone. Right. Um, my daughter was just at the Lima airport on Tuesday mm -hmm. flying back from a little uh, stint she did in the Sacred Valley. And mm -hmm. she, uh, she called, she texted me from the airport and she said, dad, you know, I'm only at the airport. It's not really a great shop, but <laughs> what, which, which brands do you want me to bring back? And I'm like, look yeah. for the Chatel, look for the Cocosuyo, see what you can yeah. get. And she brought, yeah. 
she, you know, she, she brought us a, a supplemental supply from the, you know, dozens that we picked up in your shop in, in <laughs> late July. So yeah. are there other brands that we can find in the U.S.? That's uh, Cacosuyo, Chatel, Nina, they're also there. You would have to buy uh, at a specialty store. Um, but the good thing is that they can ship a little bit more easily within the U.S. One of the things you, you maybe notice when you think about super high quality or craft chocolate mm -hmm. is that a lot of it is produced, like the final production happens in countries that are colder and that have mm. dr drier climate. And even mm. in South America, you know, which places are really known or historically have been known for making chocolate, it's the southern cone. It's mm -hmm. Bariloche or Pucón where you have a pretty cold climate year round. How is it that these local facilities, is it just through mm -hmm. climate control of their buildings? Yeah, I mean, look at the division in Lima. You, you, you've made a great point in the beginning. We're talking about the topographical division of Peru. We are three very diverse geographical regions. The majority of the cacao is grown in the jungle. We, of course, do have our Piura Tumbes coastal cacao, very famous. Um, but the majority is Amazonian, hot, humid, dry. If you think about the final phase of the chocolate production, when you need to temper the chocolate, you need humidity control, you need temperature control, you need to be cool. That is the polar opposite of what the jungle and the Amazon offers you. You're fighting the forces of nature to make that chocolate bar. So we see the majority of the chocolate production today, volume-wise, based in Lima, where it doesn't get as miserably humid and hot. Uh, the summer here is brutal, and it's every chocolate maker, chocolate retailer's worst nightmare. Um, but it's not as bad as trying to battle the jungle area and making this chocolate in limited conditions where you don't have uh, as much access to climate-controlled rooms. It's very expensive. Sometimes the electricity goes out, so it's 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 tricky. Um, I think that it could be interesting if in the, the jungle areas, maybe each city that has substantial chocolate production could have one controlled cooling center where people could rent out the space instead of everyone trying to have their own air-conditioned, dehumidified space. Um, a nice marble slab to temper the chocolate because that's one of our major obstacles. How do you get these climate-controlled um, rooms to make sure that your chocolate comes out A1 top grade? Yeah, the co-op model makes so much sense because these machines are very expensive. Oh my gosh, yes, yes they are. On the cultivation side though, mm -hmm. there's nobody who knows about cultivation of chocolate more than the Peruvians and there's pretty strong evidence that uh, cacao originated within what is now Peruvian territory. Right? Yes, I will, uh, with a dash of humility, say I just had the most fascinating conversation last night with an English chocolate maker working with cacao producers from the Pacific Islands and the techniques that they're using to ferment and harvest and dry their cacao blew me away. They're very advanced. They've had a lot of training uh, since the early 1900s. Uh, automatically wanted to jump on to uh, a, an airline site and find a flight out there to 
go see for myself, see what interesting nuggets we can bring back to the Peruvian farmers. But yes, Peru has the up-to-date longest known history of cultivating cacao, a point that's hotly contended uh, by our other Latin American neighbors. But the evidence that we have now that's based in science is the 2008 study by Mayor, where he looked at 737 samples of cacao growing from the southern tip of Mexico down through Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, uh, and did a genetic analysis and was able to find 110 uh, genetic clusters of cacao. Uh, before then, we were using a three-tiered system that really wasn't as precise uh, as we wanted to talk about differences on the genetic level of cacao. So it was cool to have, finally, this 10-grouping uh, system. But also, mapping the diversity of cacao, and you saw that the there were uh, many, many groupings of cacao down in South America, whereas in Central America, we had maybe one or two. Um, so when you get towards Ecuador, Brazil, Peru, you start seeing five, uh, Peru leading the way with six. Uh, and so that was the first key piece of evidence to say, hey, maybe the origin of the genetics of cacao isn't in, uh, in, in, in Mesoamerica. Maybe it's a little south. Uh, and Peru has been excited to receive the, the info that we have six of the ten kinds of cacao. So um, still something that people are looking into. There's a lot more studying to be done. Of course, there's native cacao growing wild in the most far-flung corners of the Amazon uh, that might not have been included in the study. So who knows where in the next five years we might have another study uh, being launched. And the, the varieties that you find in Peru... First of all, guys, Peru, a gigantic country. I mean, it's the size of like France and Germany and Italy combined. And people look at it on the map and they, they often call us and they say, well, I've got a week, I've got 10 days, I want to see all of Peru. And we have to ha have a discussion about what's possible. Um, yeah. But because of the, you know, the vastness of the geography, you're getting a, a so much diversity in the beans and the final product. I mean, we, we sat with you and we tasted dark mm. and milk varieties that had very strong notes of, you know, flowers, of cinnamon, of berries, mm -hmm. of smoke. Uh, mm -hmm. th that was probably just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, we ran out of time. <laughs> what is it that makes Peruvian cacao so special that you've devoted your your career to this yeah i think that genetic diversity it's so unique uh, even my mentor uh for the sensory analysis of cacao and chocolate is colombian and she came to peru because she's fascinated by the potential that peruvian cacao has because of its broad genetic base uh, but also the, the extremely varied topography of Peru. It's full of these micro niches, uh, all these different little ecosystems as you scale up and down the Andes. Uh, cacao is very sensitive to the environment in which it grows, very much like the wine world. So if you imagine that every 100 meters you could have a completely different growing system for the cacao, you're gonna have all these different flavors. Um, so it's really exciting to have this synthesis of differences in one country and it's, it's prime for exploring. And that's what draws me and so many other professionals in. This is, this is kind of a silly question, but what do you look for mm. in a chocolate bar? 
So if I'm looking to buy a chocolate bar, so without even eating it first, um, I always look for the origins we mentioned. This is something that we stress also to our, um, our customers, the people who visit us. If you can read where the origin is from, on one hand, it gives you an idea of what the flavor is, which is amazing when it's time to experience the chocolate. But on the other hand, from a social side, it's also a good indicator that the person working with those beans has a closer relationship with the farmers. It's not a guarantee, but it's a good indicator. And that helps uh, foment more responsible relationship with the cocoa farmers. It's something that we encourage people in the States, for instance, if you're looking um, for a way to help small scale farmers, always look for the origin. Um, demand that there be that connection between the chocolate maker and the producers. Um, and that as a composite package helps me enjoy the cacao more. When I know where the chocolate, when I know where the cacao comes from, I can enjoy the chocolate more. Um, and then I also, on a, just a completely visual plane, look for a box that tells a story. I'm a sucker for hearing about who's behind the bar, where the beans come from, and I like the box to have some kind of identity, um, not just a generic sticker, something that tells me about where this bar comes from. Often there's original artwork uh, on these, uh, mm -hmm. these bar packages like you'd yes. find on wine labels. Yes, yes. Are you considering doing some kind of a subscription service where you could somehow mail or get enough volume to distribute within the US so that people yes. could really support small scale producers in Peru? Another country? Yes. Since we opened two years ago, that was part of my five-year plan. So I guess that means it's my three-year plan now. Um, somehow finding a way to get these brands as a package available in the States. It's difficult for one brand to fill a container, but we work with 40 brands, John. I'm sure between at least half of them, we could get close at least to filling half a container and make it more feasible for Peruvian chocolate to be found within the States. I would be a subscriber. <laughs> First on the list, VIP. For me, the connection is personal. Chocolate is so personal for me. Um, even, even if chocolate um, you know, wasn't this, this amazingly tasting product, uh, the connection that I feel with the people behind the chocolate uh, makes it something that I enjoy so much. And so the flavor side is definitely an enhanced uh, a plus for eating chocolate, but just learning about where it comes from, that's the story that I want to hear. And I never get tired of hearing or sharing it. You've told us about different bean makers and their families. And uh, those stories are often expressed on the packages. Yes. That makes yes. you feel like it's, it's almost like when you go into an artist's studio and you meet the artist, you're so much more excited about buying a piece of art because you have that connection. A hundred percent, especially since craft chocolate, you know it, it's not something that's being mass produced anonymously. It's something that the chocolate maker has held in their hands, has evaluated and given the okay to be sent out. It's, it's linked to them. There's this connection, a personal connection. This, <laughs> these guys are producing, you know, what, a few thousand bars in a, in a season or how many? Would you say? I would say maybe per month. Marana, for instance, had a shipping order of like 25,000 bars to Taiwan that they were able to fill in a month, wow. um, working day and night tirelessly. 
but then on the other extreme, another one of my favorite brands that we work with is Scrap and Chocolates. It's a one woman team. She's got three eight pound machines in her kitchen workshop, wraps every single bar by hand. Um, I can't keep her bars on the shelf. I feel bad because she sends me messages at like 4 a.m. Oh, I'm wrapping this bar now. Sleep, Carmen, sleep, rest. <laughs> we need you. But that's, you know, her chocolate is so amazing. Uh, such small scale production. But that's, that's what she wants. She wants each bar to be something personal. She spends 20 minutes wrapping each one. You know her bars. They have the llama, a pack of stamp on them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's this direct relationship. And she's content not scaling up. She's happy where she is right now because it's this personal connection. Let's say people do come to Lima. They go to your shop. Um, and they buy, you know, all the wonderful chocolates they can, they can fit in their luggage. How should they store those when they arrive home? Room temperature is fine. Um, once you open the bars, I would definitely recommend storing them in an airtight Tupperware container because chocolate does oxidize and you lose that fresh punch of flavor. Nothing better than the smell of a freshly opened chocolate bar. And to conserve all those aromas, it's best to keep it airtight. Um, I don't opt for the fridge freezer even less. Um, my dad is a victim of that crime. And uh, I'm, just- I, I'm guilty. <laughs> No, John. <laughs> yeah, I've I have sinned. <laughs> <laughs> There's forgiveness in in the church of chocolate. It's okay. Okay. Um, and out of direct sunlight, definitely no sunlight. Okay. Are there any books? You know, I've tried to buy books in Latin America about chocolate, and they also get into a little bit of a hippy dippy vibe about you know mm. raw healing, blah blah blah. And really, yeah. I'm just after. Now, how can I buy a better bar? How do I, can I learn about the production process? Any resources like a book that you would recommend for people if they want to learn more? For production processes of, of chocolate, I haven't come across one in Peru yet. Uh, it's also on our list of things to do. We, we work with such amazing people that I think a collaborative book uh, would be an amazing resource and a physical component of our edible library, perhaps a non-edible component. But on the social side, there's this amazing book called uh, Los Guardianes del Cacao, which yeah. is a, got some recipes, you've got history of some of the farmers that work. That's Astrid's book, isn't it? Yes, yep, yes. Really great job of painting the social picture of cacao production in Peru. And then there's another book that was just produced um, the end of last year called Cacao Amazonian Treasure, available in English and Spanish. Uh, and it talks a little bit about the farming side of cacao. It talks about the genetics, it talks about Peru's diversity. Um, so it's a, a very much uh, field-based exploration of cacao in Peru. Well, AJ, I don't know how a nice girl like you from New Jersey is. <laughs> now, Lima is a wonderful city. And uh, Barranco is especially livable for it. Yeah. You know, young, you know, energetic, visionary <laughs> like you. I think everybody who comes to Lima should have this experience if they care about chocolate. Um, it's such, oh, a, you, such a beautiful experience. Even my kids... Yeah. <laughs> uh, who can't sit through anything, uh, enjoyed this and still talk about it. So, Oh, that means so much. That's, that's all I want. When I said, when I was just starting to think about this, I, this project, the only thing I wanted in life was to be known as the, the chocolate girl, that chocolate lady in Barranco. And 
nothing means more to me than knowing that when people come here, maybe they're a blank slate, maybe they even have some uh, negative connotations of chocolate, but when they leave, they go away with a new perspective that they apply daily and they think about chocolate in this new light. And that is the best compliment anyone can ever give me. So thank you so much for that. AJ Wildey, thanks for being with us on the show and uh, happy chocolate weekend. Thank you, thank you, John. See you next time. All right. If you'd like to know more about custom travel in Latin America and the Antarctic, reach out to us at landedtravel.com. Since 2006, Landed's success has been built on word-of-mouth referrals. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate the podcast or share it with a friend. Thank you for listening.